Hi guys and uh, welcome to Labour Days. So first of all, let's start with a little bit of an apology. We know it's been a while since our last Sonic offering. Um, we're, we're very busy people, but we have missed you. And I know you guys have especially missed me considering I wasn't in the last one, but don't worry, I'm gonna try my very hardest never to leave you again. Um, <laughs> we're back to our best now. We're back to our best. Full compliment. Fighting fit. Yeah. This month's episode will mostly uh, be centred around an interview that we do with Kim Moody and that it will be explained a little bit more about who he is and what the interview will entail later on. But before that, we thought we'd do a roundup of what's been happening in the Labour movement as it's been a while since we spoke to you. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand over to my co-host Daniel Randall who's going to be talking to you about some rail strikes. Uh, thanks very much Ellie. Um Obviously, the uh, news roundup is not going to be uh, completely comprehensive, but we thought we'd pick on a few kind of key disputes, either because um, they echo issues that we've talked about in previous episodes or, or because we think they have a particular importance. Um, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, ongoing disputes against the imposition of driver-only operation on the railway. So as listeners may know, uh, my union, the RMT, has been in dispute um, with a number, uh, an expanding number of train operating companies on the mainline railway against the attempt to get rid of um, safety critical guards from trains and, and impose driver only operation. And the last set of strikes um, took place um, in January, a couple of weeks before this podcast um, is due to come out. Um, and the companies involved were um, Arriva Rail North, Mersey Rail, um, Southern, Southwestern Railway and Greater Anglia. Um, so those disputes are, are still very much ongoing and one particular thing I wanted to kind of flag up because it very much echoes a discussion we had in I think our fourth episode which was on industrial unionism uh, versus craft unionism and we talked there about the relationship particularly between the RMT and, and ASLEF, the, the driver only union on the railway. Um, a, a, a key dynamic really of those uh, strikes against driver only operation has been the solidarity or unfortunately more often the lack of it from uh, train drivers uh, predominantly in Aslef, um, many of whom basically have been crossing RMT picket lines and driving trains while the guards were on strike. Um, however that's not um, a uniform picture and I just wanted to flag up a, uh, a letter that was an, an, it's, uh, an open letter to fellow Aslef drivers it's called um, published um, on the Off the Rails website, which is a platform for rank and file rail workers hosted by Workers Liberty, and that's a call, but but from an Aslef driver who has been taking a sort of solidarity action um, and refusing to cross those RMT picket lines, um, it's, it's it's a call from them to other Aslef drivers to kind of join them in that action. So I'm just going to read out a really quick extract from it because um, I think it's really opposite to the, the, the whole kind of discussion about industrial unionism and the need for solidarity. So it starts off with a quote from the ASLEF member's diary. It says, um, it has long been the tradition in ASLEF to respect picket lines, whether they are our own or those of fellow trade unionists. So that's published um, in, in the diary issued to every member of ASLEF. The, the letter goes on, it's time to make this a reality. Dear driver, I'm writing to you as a fellow ASLEF driver because I want to persuade you that we need to change how we approach the current RMT disputes over DOO or DCO. We may most of us be in a separate union, but I believe that our interests in this matter are bound up with those of the guards. Uh, 
goes on later, I'm addressing this letter to the majority of drivers who know that driver-only operation is unsafe, is bad news for drivers and the public, and who do not want to see their colleagues' jobs devalued or wiped out. What this situation needs is for us to stop crossing picket lines. And the letter goes on to talk about the example of Mersey Rail, which is the one train company where, due to the work of kind of activists in the workplace there, the as-left driver membership has been pretty much entirely 100% solid, um, refusing to cross those RMT picket lines. So we'll put a link to that letter um, in the episode description. I just wanted to flag that up, both because it's a really important uh, kind of national industrial dispute in a key strategic industry over, over a really key issue, but also because that particular dynamic of the relationship between a kind of craft union and an industrial union, I think flags up some of the themes we've talked about on this podcast before. And I wanted to mention that letter particularly because it's a it's a kind of a, a bit of a, a bit of a ray in a in, in in what unfortunately is quite a bleak situation, but it, it's a it's a it's a germ of hope. And uh, as as socialists in the labour movement, we should always be uh, trying to seek out and amplify those. So check it out when we put the link up. Okay, so I'm now going to hand over to. Um, Professor Edmund the Brain Mustill. Um, he's not a real professor, um, but uh, because of that appellation, uh, he's our kind of go-to person for commentary and analysis on uh, education worker strikes, uh, which is what he's going to talk about now. So, Ed. So, the UCU, uh, University and College Union, uh, of which I'm not a member because I am not a real professor, <laughs> uh, has been busy since we've last been on the air. Um, a local dispute at the University of Manchester has been very successful following six months of campaigning, negotiating, including a long period of working to rule, and two days of strike action at the end of October, the University of Manchester withdrew its plans to make 171 compulsory redundancies. Uh, Some staff have taken voluntary redundancy, but those redundancy packages have been improved because of uh, union negotiation. The campaign saw huge support across Manchester from other trade unions, other universities, student groups, community groups and the Shadow Education Secretary, Angela Rayner, and it also saw an increase in membership of 300 to the UCU branch of the university, which is quite amazing. It's an increase to 300, or no, an increase, increase of, of 300. 300. Wow. incredible. There you um, go, unions grow when they fight. Which gives further strength going forward to a campaign for the 100 early career academics appointed on temporary contracts to be awarded permanent contracts, which, as I understand, is a universal problem across academia. Uh, in addition to the national fight against the slashing of university pensions, which I'll come on to now. So UCU has uh, won a ballot 88% in favour of strike action. Um, this is at the pre-1992 universities or pre-Premier League era universities, as I like to <laughs> refer to them. Local success feeding into what will hopefully be a national success. If you are a student or if you work on one of those campuses... Uh, get in touch with your local UCU branch, uh, offer them support for the for the forthcoming strikes. So I'll hand back over to Ellie, who's going to update us on the Picture House dispute, which we've mentioned a lot on the and podcast. It's the subject of our very first episode, so something quite dear to the heart of this uh, particular Sonic offering slash podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we're, we're big champions. We love it a lot. So, um, I mean, if, I guess the first thing to get out of the way is that the strike is still going really, really strong. Um, and the lads, and I mean that in a completely gender neutral way, are holding in very, very well. So um, there was some strike action in the middle of January. And also they are hoping to announce another set of quite significant strike actions in the near future. 
Um, Picture House have lost the London Short Film Festival and the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. And yeah. we are, yeah, and we're hoping that they're going to lose the Sundance Film Festival as well, which would be obviously a huge yeah, big victory. Reputation for the, for yeah, for the, the workers. Um, as with any significant um, sort of strike action or any strike action, really, to be honest. Um, the more successful it becomes, the higher the pressure becomes. And this is this is not an exception to that rule. And so the bosses have been up to some really dirty tricks, um, including doing things like refusing to pay workers for um, labor that they've done leading up to a strike action. But we just want to extend our deepest solidarity with them and say how proud we are that they've managed to stick it out and they're fighting to the very bitter end and we're behind them every step of the way. Yeah, we should, we should just maybe say as, as kind of an addendum to that, um, that the McDonald's workers um, whose strike we talked about in episode six, and they also won a pretty big victory in that McDonald's increased its uh, rates of pay. Um, the increases were uh, a little bit kind of staggered in, in various ways, but um, some workers will be getting an increase to £10 an hour, which was the demand of the strike. Um, and we've talked a lot about how both the McDonald's strike and the Pitch House strike have a, have a really important both industrial and political significance that it is perhaps disproportionate to the, the actual numbers of, of, of workplaces involved. Um, so, yeah, we should definitely applaud and uh, uh, celebrate the, the, the action of, of, of both of those groups of kind of young, precarious workers uh, for, uh, for, yeah, for sticking it to their employer. And worth mentioning as well that the uh, pitch house workers do still need cash for their ongoing disputes. Absolutely. So, uh, the uh, strike fund that we've uh, shared around in the past, uh, get on it if you've got any spare money to chuck their way I once heard um, an outsourced worker at the University of London say put one hand in your heart and another one in your pocket and give us all your money so <laughs> I think that's a, that's a message that still rings true beautiful. and speaking of um, outsourced workers Daniel yeah so um, we talked a lot in our I think our third episode um, about the activities of kind of small uh, migrant worker led unions uh, mainly active in London uh, we talked about the IWGB uh, we talked about UVW the United Voices of the World both of those unions have continued to be um, incredibly active in a really inspiring way and since we were last on the air um, the IWGB have had a really phenomenal strike of outsourced workers uh, mainly kind of security staff and other ancillary workers at the University of London um, picketing outside the iconic uh, Senate House building which um, people will probably be aware of um, that dispute looks like it might win some real concessions from the University of London around outsourcing, which the union is uh, demanding is reversed. The IWGB has also got a burgeoning dispute at the Royal College of Music, um, which is ongoing. Again, we'll put links up to all of this. The UVW has a number of ongoing campaigns and it recently won an industrial dispute um, without even having to take strike action. The mere threat of action um, was sufficient to secure a really massive pay increase of, I think, about 30% for cleaning workers at the offices of a company called Lee Hecht Harrison. Um, uh, I hadn't heard of this uh, organisation before the UVW's dispute and I was just looking up on the internet to find out what it does and its website says that Lee Hecht Harrison helps companies transform to perform, that bit's in bold, in three distinct ways. Uh, one, mitigate the risk. Two, unlock future value. And three, enable workforce transformation. So. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but it sounds it sounds pretty unpleasant to be honest. It sounds like Lee Hecht Harrison is a kind of managerial consultancy yeah. firm that helps mm. other companies like 
fire cut, cut workers' yeah. jobs. Um, Fortunately, their own workforce is transforming into yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I was just industrial about, force. I was just about to say, like uh, the Lee Hecht Harrison cleaners dispute. That's the kind of workforce transformation that we're interested in. Um, workers um, standing up for themselves um, to win uh, improvements in the workplace. So, congratulations and solidarity to both the IWGB and the UVW for their uh, on- ongoing, inspiring successes. So I'm going to hand back to um, Ed, who I think possibly for the first time on this podcast gets to talk about um, an industrial issue and a dispute um, in, in which he's, he's directly involved. So um, he's, he tends to be more comfortable um, commenting at, at a distance of at least 100 years um, on, on things that you know, he's not sort of personally implicated in and can't really be held to account for. Um, but now he has to give his view on... Uh, the burgeoning public sector pay dispute. So, so Ed is a, a public sector worker, member of the PCS union, and he's going to tell us about uh, ongoing issues involving uh, public sector pay. So before Christmas, my union, the PCS, had a consultative ballot uh, of the national membership on uh, whether or not to reject the pay cap of 1%, which has now been in place pretty much since the Tories got into power in 2010. Um, unsurprisingly, but pushing 99% of the membership think that the pay cap should be scrapped. I'd like to meet the 1% who don't. <laughs> don't know where they work or what grade they're on. Um, there was a solid vote in favour of industrial action and the turnout on the uh, indicative ballot was 49%, mm. which gives some hope that we could meet the threshold in a statutory ballot. Although it has to be said that in an indicative ballot, you are allowed to vote online, you're allowed to vote over the phone. In a, the, the law is such that in a statutory strike ballot, it has to be done by post. But it tends to get lower turnout. Like, that is all true, but it's still kind of frustrating, isn't it? Because you sort of think, like, oh, if the union had just actually gone for an actual strike ballot, there's clearly an appetite and a mood there. It probably would you know, the CWU did it, the UCU have done it, it wouldn't have taken that much of a push to actually get that ballot over the line, and then we could be talking about you know, strikes. I think I think there could have been a, a or well, could still be a, a statutory ballot that will meet the threshold. There's a, a, a potential issue in that um, the one of the biggest and best organised sections of the union uh, signed its own pay deal with the employers, which it's in the uh, for a lot a longer period, which is it's in the middle of. So whether or not they could be balloted, I'm not quite sure about the practicalities of that. Um, however, the leadership of the union hasn't explicitly said anything about moving to a statutory ballot unfortunately there what they're saying is we're going to talk to the other uh, public sector unions and see when their uh, what happens when their uh, ballot results come in and that sort of thing unison's local government executive voted very narrowly to reject the two percent offer made to its members in local government and that's going to go out to a ballot of uh, unison members in local government um so that you might be looking at uh, a couple of months down the road, um, unions getting together and talking about joint action. But it is, as most of the time in public sector trade unionism, a pretty slow and arduous process to get to that point. Uh, but something to keep an eye on in the next few weeks and months. Thank you very much for that, Ed. Um, just as we come towards the end of our news roundup, we should pay tribute to our location. We've mentioned a couple of times. Uh, before that we record this podcast in the People's Republic of Haringey, just off Red Lanes. And since the last time we were on air, we've seen the unfolding and really quite incredible story of how a community campaign 
um, supported by trade unions uh, through their affiliation to the Labour Party, has managed to derail a really quite obscene plan that would have um, seen, shamefully, the Labour Council sell off um, a load of social housing stock to Lendlease, which is a massive multinational corporate property developer, which has a terrible record of union busting um, all over the world. Um, so it's it's really been a, a kind of amazing um, campaign that's that's seen that knocked off course and, and, and reversed. It's involved a revolt in the local Labour Party. And just a few hours before we uh, went on air or, or sat down to record today, um, the news came through that the leader of Haringey Council, Claire Cober, has announced her resignation and she was really a kind of key architect and advocate um, of this scheme. So that's a really good example of how working class community campaigns um, working in alliance with and through the kind of official structures of the labour movement, both industrial and political, can you know, really have a, have, have a big impact and on a local level kind of turn back, on this issue at least, the tide of, of austerity and kind of neoliberal gentrification. So that's a, that's a real good news story. Okay, guys, and now we're going to hand back over to Ed the Brain Muscle for the final item in our news roundup. I should tell everyone at this point, I don't tell them to call me that. It's, <laughs> it's not like an ego trip on my part. Yeah, well, so... did, did you notice, though, that Ellie, Ellie stripped you of your fake professorial title? Yeah, it's because the UCU just got on the phone. <laughs> Workers at the Camelard Shipyard in Birkenhead on the banks of the Mersey, a very historic uh, workplace that's been the site of many a sit-in and walk-out in the past, um, have taken two 24-hour strikes since the new year. Uh, for a set of demands that are really quite positive, uh, a, a, a above inflation pay rise and a reduction in working hours. Um, it's good to see a group of workers uh, taking sort of ag- aggressive, positive, offensive, offensive, offensive demands. Action. And wouldn't we all like a reduction in working hours for more money? So best of luck to them. All right. So you just heard a, a really quite whistle-stop tour of some of the highlights from the front lines of class warfare. Like a match of the day for the Labour move. Exactly. The kind of um, highlights roundup. The sort of the one that you get on match of the day too, you know, where they really like rattle through it at top speed. Um, as we said at the top, absolutely not exhaustive. Um, we're, we're certain that there's lots of... Uh, Lots of struggles going on all over the place that we haven't been able to cover. And if you are aware of any, uh, let us know and we'll, we'll Tweet cover us. them in the future. Yeah. Um, indeed. And we're now ready to uh, kind of move on to the the, the, the headline feature, I guess, of, uh, of this episode. We were very lucky to be able to do this interview um, with somebody who I think has... I think it's fair to say, um, without, you know, without going overboard, is... is, is a really key and has been a, a, a really key labour movement um, intellectual writer uh, and activist on both sides of the Atlantic um, going back many, many decades. Um, so Kim Moody is somebody who has a, um, a long and very impressive uh, history on the uh, socialist left of the labour movement. He's been involved in a whole number of rank and file initiatives of, of really inspiring struggles. Um, he's currently uh, working at the University of Westminster in London and he's got a new book out. Um, his new book's called On New Terrain, How Capital is Reshaping the Battleground of Class War. That's published by Haymarket. Um, we'll put up um, details for how you can buy it in, in the link. And like a lot of Kim's books, it's, it's really important and very, very vital and very, very current. Um, it speaks to many of the debates that we've kind of alluded to on this podcast in the past. Um, debates around what we might call the kind of the shape of the working class. Um, how contemporary capitalism um, 
it ha- has changed the nature of work and, and, and the nature of the working class or, or, or indeed if it has and what the implications of all that are for um, working class organising on both the industrial and political terrains. So Ed recently went to speak to Kim and we're basically just going to play this interview in its entirety and then we'll come back at the end um, to maybe talk about some of the aspects and, and just to kind of do a quick outro. Just to say before uh, we run the interview, um, the third voice that you'll hear interjecting at a couple of points is the voice of uh, Kim's partner, Sheila Cohen, who's also an extremely important uh, labour movement writer and activist who's who's written some uh, really excellent stuff on a whole number of topics, including a book about the um, Ford Dagenham machinist strike, uh, kind of made more famous by, by the film Made in Dagenham. So that's the third voice that you'll hear. But the main part of the interview is uh, with our own uh, Edmund the Brain Mustill, and with the author of On New Terrain, Kim Moody. So Kim, first off, would you like to just explain why you decided to write this book now and why you think that what you say in the book is important for trade unionists to take note of in the current climate? Okay, well, the, the first thing is, obviously, this is written in the context of the absolutely incredible, enormous, disastrous decline of trade unions in the United States and most other developed countries as well, more so in the U.S. Um, The decline of strikes, the number of strikes, and and all of that. Uh, So there have been a lot of things that I've written and many other people have written about the, the nature of the decline or the causes of the decline. So I sort of thought, well, maybe it's about time we start thinking about, and I'm not the first to do this, but you know, thinking about how to get out of the decline. What's new in capitalism? I think I felt for a long time on, on the left in particular, um, the sort of main um, theory, the main idea was, well, everything's falling apart. All work is precarious. You know, uh, the unions can't do anything about it. Um, and <clears throat> The time has passed for, for that sort of thing. Uh, and so I had been doing for a long time um, kind of research into some of what I thought were the new developments in, in capitalism. Now, some of these have been written about by other people. The logistics thing is becoming absolutely popular now. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> But um, when I started it, researching it, it wasn't so much. Some of the other aspects, I think, are, are uh, less generally uh, realized. But I felt, um, you know, that my previous books really didn't deal with this new situation. And so that's, that's why I uh, decided it was time to turn some of that research and thinking, um, you know, into... Uh, into a book, or maybe I started out probably thinking about an article, but it ended up being a being a book. And of course, it wasn't just me. I mean, I'm in correspondence with a lot of people, and you know, we think about these things a lot here. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that's. So I'll come back to the the questions around like precarity and uh, and. Um... And logistics and, and stuff like that. I'll, I'll come back to uh, uh, in a bit. But yeah. the, so one of the things that you say kind of early on in the book is that one of the main reasons that sort of those kind of core traditional trade union jobs 
in sort of in manufacturing have, have been lost in kind of Western economies is the the high levels of productivity in those jobs and I guess the, the fact that like for example I mean so f- for example like I'm from Sheffield which was known as a steel city and it still makes steel but instead of having a hundred thousand people making steel there's about 1200 yeah and yeah. that's so, and then and then you say and then you say in the, the service jobs that have kind of risen to, to take take the place or risen in, in in the stead of manufacturing jobs that those jobs are very low productivity and they require like quite a lot of still require quite a lot of human labor to be yeah, done in general um, yeah. and what what so what do you think of the idea that because some people have been writing and there have been reports in the last couple of years about potentially the number of service jobs that could themselves be kind of automated out of existence in the in the coming years or decades i mean do you think that's kind of overblown um i do in fact i've just written something about that Mm. for historical materialism i don't know if they'll publish it but i think i think the problem if you read through a lot of the more serious projections academic ones and industry ones and so forth and even some of the left ones about automation there's this kind of bright-eyed optimism because oh my god artificial intelligence you know they're smarter than we are they can beat us at jeopardy and they can do all these magnificent things you know yeah but you know is it practical is that kind of first of all is that kind of knowledge necessary for an industrial robot or an agv in a warehouse or these kiva robots that pick things you know in in uh, in distribution centers fulfillment centers and so forth um, you know, and the answer is no, actually. Uh, this kind of in artificial intelligence and a lot of the computer capacity and all of that is is actually way beyond the practical application of a lot of this stuff. Right, yeah. So that's one part of it. The, you know, so the, the robots that do appear, uh, and here this is interesting to me, in the United States and, and actually worldwide, half the robots, industrial robots I'm talking about, are in the automobile industry. Right. No other industry comes even close, including service industries. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at the main service industries associated with logistics, to kind of put it in that frame, um, those are growing uh, in terms of employment, yeah. have been for quite a while, still are, even given the slowness of the economy and everything. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and you know, again, the, the part of the reason, I think, is that capital has been so successful in creating low-wage jobs mm-hmm. that the incentive to invest a lot of money in advanced technology isn't what it used to be. And yeah. if you look at the figures for investment, uh, most of my figures have looked at the U.S., but I suspect it's true here, too. Um, you know, you see that the... the the level of investment as a proportion of in, in total investment, the level of investment in, in equipment, in things like robotics and so forth, has been going down, right. down, 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 not up, up, up. Yeah. And this has to do with the classic falling rate of profit problem uh, of capitalism and, and why I think the, the system is not out of its troubles by a long shot. And therefore, this kind of investment that could be done, I'm not saying it's impossible, 
but to a large extent, to a surprising extent, is not being done yeah. outside of the automobile industry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so that, I think, these th like the other great one that they always talk about are the driverless trucks. Yeah. There is no such thing, mm. actually, mm. yet. What they can do is they can go on a smooth highway for a certain amount of you know, time. They can't yeah. get on and off by themselves. They can't drive in the cities. There are all kinds of things yeah. that they can't do yet. So it's not practical for capital to invest a lot of money uh, in, a, in that. I mean, there are companies that do this, of course, but uh, yeah. it just isn't moving ahead at the pace that um, you know, a lot of, particularly the futurists, I yeah. know, there have been a whole lot of books, Martin Ford and others recently, um, about this stuff. And so you, you don't sort of buy into the idea that we're on the cusp of a kind of large-scale destruction of millions of jobs around the world and that, that that's all going to happen in the next couple of decades? Uh, no, I don't. And, and actually, studies by things like the World Economic Forum and the WTO are sort of saying, well, you know, they love this stuff after all, but they're saying it isn't really happening the way, yeah. you know. Yeah. And not that we have to take their word for it, but, and one can never say that this will never happen, yeah. but in the foreseeable future, unless there's a big reversal in the health of capitalism, not just in the US or the UK, but globally, uh, I don't see this, yeah. this happening. It will eliminate jobs, but not on the scale people yeah. are talking about. Yeah. And so technology has always eliminated jobs and, and yeah. while, creating, sure. while creating other jobs in, in other or new. Well, that's areas. the other side of it too, yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. So the other, so I guess the sort of automation has been like a big sort of buzzword in, I mean, not just left-wing circles, but, but generally as well. And the other big sort of buzzword idea in the last few years has been this idea of precarity, the rise of precarious work, um, people like um, Standing have even said, you know, that's significant enough for there to be a new class of, of precarious workers, <coughs> yes. and that's sort of seems to have been, that idea seems to have been adopted like pretty broadly like in the, uh, I, don't, I don't know so much about in academic literature, but certainly in like the popular imagination and in the media, and, and there's a lot, a lot being written about it. Um, how so? How important is it? Do you think for the trade union movement to kind of approach that idea a bit more critically and maybe see it as not something that's just a kind of entirely new phenomenon, but something which is the result of more long-term changes in the way that sort of capital kind of restructures well, the economy? I, yeah, I, I think that's important. A lot of industries historically begin with precarious workforces. Factory work was historically that, the docks we know, you know, you could go transport, all, all these kind of things were, uh, particularly before they got unionized, were precarious and then they ceased to be so precarious. Although I would argue under capitalism, all employment is potentially precarious, but, but not quite in the sense that, you know, we're talking about now zero hour contracts and things. Uh, obviously these things have grown, but what, what I'm saying is that most people, including most people who, whose jobs are put in the precarious column by people like Guy Standing and Mike Savage and these people who are restructuring class analysis in the layer cake manner, uh, I think that they're, 
you know, they're missing the point that uh, these people do have workplaces. They go to yeah. work. Uh, temporary workers today in the States, I think it's probably true here too, they already call them permatemps. Yeah. You know, people who work for years, there I know people in auto plants who, union people who tell me, you know, their plants have maybe 10% permatemps. They've been there as long as the union workers have. Um, you know, the, the problem there is the union doesn't get about organizing them, yeah. uh, which is what needs to be done, obviously. So if you look at a warehouse, um, this is a place where there are a lot of uh, temporary agency workers, you know, maybe depends on the warehouse, 40 to 60 percent even in some. Um, but what is happening there is that some of the low-level struggles in the states, the, the first thing they, they're, they're not even unionized, they're doing this themselves. Um, the first thing they go for is permanent employment status by the owner of the warehouse. Yeah. And sometimes they will, not all the time yeah. by any means. Yeah. Well, what, what my answer to that question is, it, aside from the question of how much more of it there is than there were, say, 20 or 30 years ago, um, my answer to that is that um, when, you, when you look at the history of organizing, of how workers organize themselves, not just how unions come in and organize them, but how they organize themselves, and again the docks are a classic example of that here is in the United States and most places, basically on the docks in the old days not only did you do the, the lineup every day, but there were scores of different employers there. Yeah. Uh, on the docks. Well, finally, the workers struck together and said, well, you know, you get together and figure it out because we don't care, you know, <laughs> and, and that's it. We're not going to work until you bargain with us. Yeah. And that's how it has to happen here uh, in these days, you know, in, yeah. in the kind of jobs that face a heavy, uh, relatively heavy amount of yeah. temporary or precarious yeah. work. Yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning as well, like, particularly in light of the Carillion uh, collapse, that even, I mean, that's a, another example of something like contracting and subcontracting, another example of something that I think gets talked about as if it's a kind of new, oh, it's a, it's a kind of neoliberal innovation, of, but obviously the old London docks was an incredibly elaborate system of subcontracting, like right down to, right. you might have a small employer who employs like a, a gang of five or six dockers and that's part of this incredible like structure of a hundred thousand workers with yeah 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 so it's none of it is is like i was i always feel a bit i don't know i always feel like a bit of a grumpy old man when i say stuff like this because I, I i always end up just saying oh, i don't think any of this stuff's new and i think people should just <laughs> i think people should just like, examine labor history a bit more and think about the sort of parallels but then you don't want to turn into someone who's like the flip side of that coin, right? It's not obviously it's not exactly the same. Yeah, it's yeah. not exactly no, the same. Everything isn't well. the same. But I mean, in, in terms of outsourcing, I mean, any manufacturing industry, if you look at the automobile industry for the last, I don't know, nearly 100 years, it's all based on outsourcing. It always has been. In fact, the interesting thing about the last 20 years is the restructuring of outsourcing in, in auto and, and some other manufacturing industries, where what they've done is reduce the number of suppliers, reorganize the supply chain into first tier, second tier, and third tier, so that the 
you know, the final assemblers, General Motors, Ford, whoever, uh, not just auto, but um, <clears throat> controls the first tier, which is expected to control the others. So they've actually streamlined these things. They're not getting bigger, they're getting smaller. Yeah. Uh, and the companies that make them up are themselves getting bigger. Yeah. Uh, so you have a, you know, a different situation than you used to have. I think the way it's turned out actually makes it, and this will get to the logistics thing, but makes it easier to organize um, industries like that that have these rationalized, just-in-time, you know, super high-tech guided, uh, you yeah. know, assim uh, not assembly lines, I mean supply chains. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, that actually leads straight into my next question, which is kind of moving on from examining the kind of structure of the economy to thinking about the trade union response to that. So obviously in the book you talk about logistics as a kind of key uh, site of, of trade union struggle. Now that's, that, that is an industry where there is sort of very much kind of like com complex networks of employment and, and, and all the sort of things that we've just been talking about. So from a trade union point of view, like strategically, do you think there's a, do you think there's a or a few uh, examples of like a sort of the best way to go into that terrain and, and organize? That's hard to say because it depends a lot on, on the industry. Mm. Let me say a couple of things about logistics, which is considered an industry, but it's actually a, an industry that serves all industries, yeah. everything. Yeah. from any service to manufacturing to whatever requires logistics, can't function without it. Yeah. Um, but there is a structure to the way logistics has been organized in the last 20 years. And th this is actually, I don't think people realize how new this is because we've always had supply chains, we've always had what you might call logistics, you know, but, but a number of things are new and it's important to understand that. One is the technology that links it all together. Uh, that's important. This is not technology that necessarily destroys um, manual jobs so much as it does administrative jobs, yeah. but it's important. Um, and one reason it's important is that if you read the surveys by logistics managers talking about the vulnerability of their systems, the number one source of vulnerability is IT failure, right? Yeah. which is an interesting thing. So these workers have a role. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't, we haven't figured that one out very well yet, but they, but they do. Mm. Um, it, the other thing, though, is that um, the supply chains are can be extremely complex. You're you're right about that, but they're not random. Yeah. And this is important. And one of the reasons why I tend to emphasize warehousing or warehouses, uh, you know, is first of all, because they're the new territory in this industry. We think, well, they've been around forever, right? No. Uh, in the U.S., they have grown by two and a half times since the late 90s. Mm -hmm. The number of them, they're much bigger than they used to be. Mm -hmm. Used to be about 10,000 square feet. Now they're 100,000 plus. Yeah. <clears throat> more some of the ones opening here are even bigger uh, you know so you have this growth of these things essentially a new workforce you know as, as we discussed it's a, it's a mixed workforce in terms of permanent employment versus 
precarity or temporary employment agencies. Um, but it's a new workforce. And what's it drawn from? Well, it's drawn from, at least in the States, the classic reserve army of labor. All of the big, and here's the other thing before I move to that point. The other thing is that in order to make these, this whole logistics supply thing work at the national level and the global level, they've had to create what are being called by the industry logistics clusters. Yeah. And this is, this is important. One of the reasons why a lot of the big manufacturers in the U.S., and, and maybe less so here, but in Europe, left their traditional uh, concentrations of blue-collar workers in cities like Detroit or Chicago or Coventry or whatever, um, was to get away from these workers, yeah. right? These concentrations of you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of unionized blue-collar workers. Well, what they've done is they've recreated clusters of tens and hundreds of thousands of workers in finite geographic areas. Yeah. So like in the U.S., the three biggest ones, well, four biggest ones are Chicago in the middle, which has got about 150,000 um, logistics occupations working in the finite area there, a sort of 30, 40 mile radius area. Uh, Los Angeles, the port and the Inland Empire from there. Again, these are these are clusters of massive amounts of warehousing. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Look yeah. at the pictures of these things, and you know it's incredible. Yeah. But not only that, also uh, intermodal yards, where you change from rail to truck to rail, etc. Uh, these are huge, huge places. They're employing thousands. Um, so, in, but in this country, so so that's something I wanted to ask you about. So, so I mean, in terms of the the big kind of economic changes that you that you talk about in the book like I think you could pretty much apply uh, most of what you talk about in relation to America you could probably apply here but do, does does Britain have those big hubs in this in the same way or are they in this because it seems at least if we do they're not they're not concentrated in big population centers in the same way because like if I go from on the train back to Sheffield through the East Midlands, you see all the massive warehouses, but yeah. they're all kind of in small towns or in the middle of nowhere. Or a, a lot of them, a lot of them are in kind of old pit, pit villages and pit towns, and in some cases built on the very place where the pit yeah. used to be. Yeah. Now, maybe we, maybe we do have those. Maybe we do have those big kind of logistics clusters. I know, um, I know, for example, Unite have have started to in terms of their organising strategy, have started to think about what they call industrial hubs, which I think is kind of getting at a similar, uh, a similar thing to what you're talking about in terms of looking at a geographical area as a, as a, as a place to organise rather than, rather than thinking about particularly is such and such an employer there that we, have, that we already have a, uh, members in, in that company or whatever. Um, but... Do we have do we have those same big clusters in Britain or? Uh, it's much for some strange reason. It's it's much harder to research this stuff mm. here than it is in the states. I, I've been trying. Um, the answer is yes. You have some of them. Um, you know the um, the Midlands are sort of a bunch of them. 
around there, like I guess you're talking about, but but the West Midlands too. Mm. Um, London has really two of them. Um, one on the west uh, of London. None of these clusters I'm talking about are in the middle of cities. They're yeah. all on the edges. Yeah. Um, they become new urban areas unto themselves mm. uh, to a certain extent. Um, so you have the the ones out west. These are older ones like Sainsbury's and you know these kind of stores. And this is where there are some young people. I don't know if you've run across these workers of the Wild West, or they work in these warehouses trying to organize stuff. You have something, though, growing on, on the east of London, down the Thames Estuary, uh, kind of uh, running, you know, all the way from Tilbury Docks and past there to Thames Gate, which is semi-new, and then the London Gateway, which is brand new and huge. They're going to have, they say, 27,000 workers in that one place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you begin to add up these workers who are within 30 or 40 miles, I mean, you know, that in the States that's a small distance. Yeah, yeah, I suppose yeah. here it's a big distance, yeah. but uh, it's not undoable, you know, in terms of bringing people together. Uh, you could do that. Now, uh, Unite has in fact gotten recognition at London yeah. um, uh, Gateway. Uh, uh, they did it in a, a semi-top-down way, which I think is a mistake, although it's interesting that some of the Tilbury Dockers went over there right. talking to the new employees there and convinced them to join the union. So yeah. there is a, a little dimension of rank-and-file work. And if, also a nice historical symmetry with the, the role of the Tilbury Docks in uh, New Unionism, Hundred and twenty-five oh, okay. years ago, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Good. I didn't even think of that. That's a good point. Um, well, that's how these things are done, right? And so, now whether the you know the organization that takes place in these these huge warehouses there and on the docks there, uh, and and the intermodal yard and all that, are actually organized as opposed to just being recognized, you know, is. I don't know the answer to that yet, but that's that's the key to it. If you don't have strong workplace organization mm -hmm. in these things, you know, you're not going to be able to prevent all kinds of like precarity and, you know, low yeah. wages and all that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. So, uh we'll see what happens there, but yes, it 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 does happen here. It's not maybe quite as uh obvious yet or as spectacular. For instance, another thing is there's a, a whole initiative by the government and, and the railway industry to uh, upgrade the freight railway spine that runs up the middle of England to Scotland and so forth, and then branches off to Liverpool and you know, the other cities there, uh, to create a, a freight corridor, which they really haven't had. Um, here, most of the freight is moved by uh, lorries, um, whereas well, it is in the States too, but the rail has become much more important in the States because of the size of size of things. So you have several groups of workers that we have to think about if we're going to say, well, how do we organize all this? It can't just be, well, okay, Unite's going to send in people to this place and we organize this one place and okay, everything's fine. No, you have to find a way to bring these, these dockers, these truckers, these railway workers, 
you know, together to begin to think strategically about, well, what are the points in this system that are vulnerable, you know, that we can take advantage of to force change, you know. And and what, so what implications then do these sorts of clusters have for actual, the actual structure and organisation of the unions? Because, I mean, we... Every episode of Labor Days, we always end up talking about industrial unionism at some point as a as this kind of ideal that we're striving towards. Um, but when you're talking about something like like you, you like you said earlier, logistics isn't an industry; it kind of services every industry. Or you, and you could say that I think about the whole of the the sort of service sector is that it, like it's it's very difficult to kind of demark where one industry stops and another industry starts and so when you've got unions that have that are still organizationally based on having a membership of of workers in a particular industry quite clearly defined industry well when you're talking about these these big hubs sort of tens of thousands of workers there's going to be a lot of unions that have a kind of stake in that and we i mean we all know about how there can be turf wars between unions, there can be sort of obstructive attitudes towards working together and stuff like that. I mean, is organising these places something that's going to require a kind of new sort of of cross-union kind of networks of activists or, you know, what, how how do you, how how would you kind of go about sort of breaking down the sort of sectional barriers that still exist between the different unions. I mean, maybe you could talk about uh, labour notes uh, here because obviously that has played a role in the states of, of like bringing rank and file activists together across different unions in a way that we don't really have. I don't think in this country we really have something similar to that. I, I think this is the most difficult part because everything you said about the, you know, the particular interests of each union. I, I mean. Uh, just to give you a, a negative example, in the um, a lot of the organizing in the states that's going on in warehousing is being done in non-traditional ways um, by things called workers' centers. Now, they usually they're backed by one or another union, uh, but they don't try to go through the official recognition channels and all of that because they know they'll just get shot down until they have a big enough mass to force something. So they're trying to build that mass through small actions and things of that sort, training people and and all that kind of thing. Uh, There are actions that take place now and then. There have been some strikes and little things. Um, uh, In in the case of the LA Long Beach one, which is the the biggest cluster, um, actually by far, well, maybe not, Memphis has become like enormous 200,000 workers in the logistics sector there. But <clears throat> anyway, the, the, there was an organization there called Warehouse Workers United. I mean, it's still there. And this was the kind of workers' center. It was backed by a union, uh, the United Food and Commercial Workers. Well, a couple of years ago, on economic grounds, they pulled out. Right. So there's no official backing anymore, you know, which... You mean they thought it was, too, it was taking up too much of their resources? Yeah, this is the way union bureaucrats yeah. think, right? Yeah. You know, I got my, you know, my uh, 
my worksheet here and you know I do this balance and is it worth it are we going to yeah. get enough members to cost you know blah 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 cost uh, calculation and all that kind of thing that they still think that way mm. uh, and so they what they thought was well we're not going to get anything for a long time so we we can't afford this anymore uh, so they pulled out mm. um, I don't know exactly what that means yet uh, I'm hoping to find out more at the Labor Notes Conference in the spring, but uh, <clears throat> it's obviously not not a good sign because it means some of the resources that the Warehouse Workers United had are, are gone, obviously. Uh, but they haven't gone and they're still trying to organize, and how that will turn out, I don't know. Um, in the Chicago one, the union behind the Warehouse Workers for Justice, another one of these unofficial things, is the United Electrical Workers. Now this is a left-led yeah. union, very small. Mm. They don't have a lot of resources to begin with, but they've put people into this and they've done some things there too. Uh, you know, if you had, if you, you could have a perfect thing, you would want to go to like the Regional Trades Council or the Central Labor Council, they call them in the States, and say, well, here's Here's a job for you. Yeah. You know, you've got uh, this is Chicago. You've got six hundred thousand union members in this city uh, and vicinity. Uh, take one percent of them and put them out. You know, talking to workers in their homes and in the cities around the warehouse. You can't get into warehouses. It's like uh, national security stuff. But you can get into the communities. They do this. I mean, the UE does this and so forth but if you had those kind of numbers but as you said about trades councils the it's even worse in the states the central labor councils are are basically political hacks behind the democratic party right. that kind of thing right. you know they don't really coordinate action and is, and, is, is, is there and, much i mean is there any possibility of, of kind of rejuvenating that that Organization like I don't think, think so, but, to be but what I do think, here's, here's what I think, that in most of these cities in the last several years, or maybe 10 years, a lot of local unions have been taken over by rank-and-file opposition movements. Mm -hmm. So you have locals that are trying to do things, mostly in their own realm, their own workplaces, uh, you know, that are new and different. And these include Teamsters, they include not exactly railroad workers, they have a rank-and-file organization that crosses craft lines, uh, and some other unions that are relevant to uh, this thing. So I would say, well, even the teachers' union, like the Chicago Teachers' Union, this is was the big story a few years ago. Yeah. They're still there. Uh, there are others like that. You're talking about unions that begin to number in the tens of thousands. Well, maybe if you could get them together, and the way to get them together, in my opinion, is to start trying to convince rank and file members to push this sort of yeah. agenda. Yeah. You know, to say that, you know, okay, we've taken over this local, we're doing these good things. Uh, it's hard, we're getting battered ourselves, but maybe here's a way to have a breakthrough. And, you know, a place like Labor Notes would be, I, I'm hoping we can have some panels there on this sort of thing. Uh, I'm sure they've already thought of it, actually. Uh, 
um, you know, to begin getting, and that's the, the other reason I wrote the book, because let's get these ideas out there. Because yeah. the official unions are not thinking in these terms. Yeah. It's not that they don't know all this. Yeah. You know, they have smart people in their research departments and all that. Yeah. But they're not, you know, it hasn't penetrated their... Uh, their very defensive consciousness, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, or, or, or they just don't really put it out to the member. You know, it might be conversations that are happening in the in the HQ or whatever, but it's not it's not part of the sort of education of, of the active layer of the membership. I mean, in my experience. Yeah, oh well, no, it's not. I you mean, have to be States... you have to be like really into trade unionism to to for your union to like yeah, talk mean, to you about any of this stuff at all. Yeah, there, there is no education in most American unions. They abolished their education departments ages ago. You know, you have to go to one of these university courses or something where you meet other people or to a labor notes yeah, meeting or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not optimistic that the top union officialdom will suddenly wake up one morning and say, oh yeah, okay, we could do this. You know, we've got these, you know, 150,000 people in the Chicago area who are not, well, actually some of them are union members. That's the other thing, actually. In logistics, you have, with particularly um, truck drivers and, and railroad workers and certain other occupations, they're pretty well organized. Um, so they can already play a role if, you know, they're thinking in, in these yeah. terms, yeah. which mostly... You know, except for some of the reform ones, the the where the rank and file types have sort of taken over, uh, they're not really thinking broadly. Yeah. Uh, so the the question is to get rank and file activists to start thinking about these things. That's that's the first yeah. step. I don't see any way around that, frankly. And I know that looks like, you know, a long, a long haul. The other thing I would say though is that. You know, again, we have to look back at history. And history is that unions are not, and, and periods of mass strikes and these things, these things don't mount up gradually. Yeah. They tend to explode. And they explode because the pressure on the workers becomes pretty intolerable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been going on for a long time uh, in a lot of most workplaces, I would say. Yeah. Um, which doesn't mean that everybody's on the edge of rebelling or something like that, but I think you have you can't rule out the possibility, uh, you know, of a a docker type rebellion among warehouse workers supported yeah. by yeah. teamsters and rail workers yeah. and and so forth. Uh, that mean, could change everything in a short period of time. Yeah, I mean, it it does make me think of back to kind of new unionism in this in the sense of like. Yeah. Because obviously, with the, even with something like the dog strike in eighteen eighty nine, there was there was a already unionised core of workers on on the London docks, the stevedores, who gave assistance to the to the dock labourers to, mm. to 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 organise themselves. So even there, there's a kind of parallel in that you know the dock strike was kind of breaking new ground, but it wasn't. It wasn't entirely breaking new ground because there were there were union activists on the docks that had been sort of plugging away for for a few years previously, and you do talk in the book about the kind of the task of the kind of activist layer in in the movement to kind of hold things together when when times aren't so good and and try and prepare itself for to to be ready to I mean I mean 
it's an interesting kind of hypothetical you know you hope it you hope it wouldn't remain a hypothetical but to, to think you know is the activist layer of the movement ready that if such a a sort of rebellious upsurge did occur sort of later this year or next year or whatever, yeah, is, yeah. Is, is that layer ready to kind of deal with that or would or would we be just kind of swamped I, by it you know yeah well that's a good question i you know i think the that kind of layer is almost never ready until it happens anyway and you know they either get ready or they don't and often they do well, let me just say one little thing this is a kind of you know what if scenario for the 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 whole logistics thing um, last year there was an election in the Teamsters Union now this is a union that not only organizes truckers some warehouse workers railway workers now are members of it it's like a you know a huge thing um, its leadership is is corrupt uh, the rank and file opposition movement came within a hair's breadth of winning yeah the thing now if they had won not so much because the particular candidate is the greatest thing, you know, or anything like that, but because the forces behind that movement were really rank-and-file forces, yeah. you know, and they turned out to vote, and they actually carried it in the U.S. It lost by the Canadian mm, vote, yeah. uh, which is unusual. It's usually the other way, but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, that, that they, you know, so that the, and in the Midwest, too, which is really important because this is the center of the whole thing, not just the Chicago thing, but all the interstate networks, the right. rail networks, everything is there. Mm. If this union had been taken over by the opposition, um, which in turn is pushed by the more militant opposition, mm. the Teamsters for Democratic Union, uh, I think you could have had a whole different way of looking at this. First of all, because the people who are going to take over were based heavily in UPS, which is absolutely key to this whole thing. Yeah. Um, they now control, I don't know, 20% of the truck driving workforce in America. Right. I mean, they are so big. They're a logistics firm. They're not just package delivery anymore. Mm. They do everything, air, long haul, trucking, everything. Uh, if that had happened, you know, I'm not saying my scenario would have been fulfilled or something like that, but the possibility would have been there because I know people in that union who think about these things and who yeah. it would have been raised and let's do something. Here is a chance to organize hundreds of thousands of people, you know, in a relatively short period of time, if you're lucky, uh, you know, but of course it didn't happen. Yeah. And so these people don't have the levers, the institutional levers of of power, uh, you know, and they remain, as a result, unfortunately, somewhat fragmented. But do they have, despite not having won that election, do they have a kind of strong enough organisation to still kind of uh, have some sort of influence on the way that the Teamsters organise or the way that they approach these kind of uh, logistics kind of clusters or... Well, is it, is it a case that the is the union sort of so closed down that it's it's a case that you have to kind of capture the leadership, otherwise it's really hard to really do anything. Um, the structure of the union uh, definitely makes it hard, but it's not impossible. Mm. Locals disobey the national union all the time, <laughs> uh, you know, and do what they're going to do. 
UPS workers in particular are more militant on average than than most. Um, it's not inconceivable that something could happen. I, I'm not saying that particular leaders have this in their mind, but yeah. you know, it's that's why it's important to get to the active rank and file, particularly where they have organization, as they do in a number of unions yeah. in, in the states. Yeah. Um, you know, to begin to. Uh, convince people that this is something that could bring about a turnaround in the, uh, you know, the fate of working class organization. Yes. And if you can do that, then you can begin to think of a lot bigger things, uh, you know, than collective bargaining. Yeah. Yeah. What have you. So. On that, in this country at the moment, although obviously things have existed in the past at various times, it seems it always seems to be like a glaring omission in this country that we we don't really have there aren't really like rank and file caucuses in in many you know I mean I can I can barely really think of any uh, that are sort of active at the moment aside from an attempt in the in the teachers union that that I think still is still going but not as actively as it as it was a couple of years ago um, so in the absence of those sort of rank and file caucuses um, and that sort of organisation. What's your kind of advice, I guess, to that sort of active layer in in the movement in this country? I mean, do you think we should prioritise trying to build those sort of uh, rank and file networks, or do you think think it's more important to just kind of look at your own branch and say what's the, you know what the what's the good kind of militant stuff that we can be doing kind of on the ground here, and then sort of maybe right. only think about linking up maybe down the road once you've kind of kicked things off in your own workplace or do you think that it's worth going to uh, organisations like trades councils which as we've discussed aren't always particularly active but there's perhaps is a latent role for them in kind of putting people in touch with each other in terms of the, the landscape of the movement in this country do you think there's a or do you think it's a question of trying out all this stuff and seeing what's the most effective well what I would say is I think first of all the the priority in in building any kind of power in the unions begins in the workplace you know if you don't have workplace organization that has some strength you're not going to get very far in your union yeah uh, or in terms of organizing other people and, and so forth. So one of the things about most of the rank-and-file groups in the states that makes them different from, say, earlier ones, a generation or so, like 60s and 70s variety, um, is that they're all co committed, not all, but most of them are committed to building workplace organization, yeah. uh, shop stewards organization, etc. deep, deep networks. Uh, teachers Union is a good, Chicago is a good example, others are now doing it all over the country. They now have a national caucus of teachers caucuses, uh, you know, in, in, based in all the big cities now. It's quite something. Um, same with the, the Teamsters for Democratic Union and, and some of the other reformers in that union. Their emphasis has always been on building workplace power, as well as union politics. But if you just do union politics, like say the broad left used yeah. to do in these unions, or what is it now, you know, United Left here and there. The, the, yeah, the, yeah, these are just basically electoral 
machines, and I think that is not what is needed at all, to yeah. be frank. I'm not saying you never run for office or anything like that, but you do it on the basis of having some strength in the rank and file, yeah. and that means in the workplace and, and so on. You can't, can't get around that stage. It's not a separate stage, though. These are things you do all at once yeah. uh, as much as you can. You know, if you get to the point, um, I mean, there is, I don't know if you know who Ian Allenson is, he, he yeah. ran in Unite, yeah. you know, and he's trying to start a national actual rank and file thing. I, I don't know how it's going. Uh, it's very difficult, obviously. Um, he does have a national network now, yeah. whether it becomes an organization or whether it's strong enough, I, I can't say, but um, I think... As long as, and his organizing has always been based on trying to build power at Fujitsu yeah. and where he is, and they're actually firing him now, and they're having strikes there about that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of the way to go, but again, it has to be very clear um, that we're not just talking about electoral machines. And, and here, to be quite honest, I, I, I blame the British left a lot. Um, even more than the American left, uh, for a kind of sectarianism about this kind of thing. I mean, I, I came into politics in America th influenced by the international socialist tradition here. And it was ABC to us that you built rank and file, workplace power, etc., and that the old CPs, you know, broad left things were not the way to go. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I don't know if you want to put this on your program or not. Perhaps <laughs> I'm not. sure we will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you get me in trouble. I'm already in trouble, so it doesn't matter. You know, the, for example, the Socialist Workers' Party, to mm. be frank, uh, you know, has a long time pursued basically the same broad left policy yeah. through the United Left, yeah. not just in Unite, but in other unions as yeah. well, Unison and uh, UCU. I, was in that for quite a while, and and you know they they uh, back in the '90s, Sheila actually started a publication like Labor now. It's called Trade Union News, and mm -hmm. it got like several thousand subscriptions. Well, the main thing about it was, you know, the guy who did my subscriptions, he did it for lots of other journals. He said that Trade Union News went into areas that he'd never come across before. Right. Yeah, people, way beyond the traditional left. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's what you need, right? Mm -hmm. If we're just organizing ourselves, the the hard left or semi hard left or whatever, uh, you know, it's 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 not going to be enough. Yeah. And I think there has been a tendency here. It's certainly true in the states and elsewhere, but it seems perhaps because the groups are bigger here, they're more effective at being sectarian. But, yeah. but given, I suppose, given now that in the in the last couple of years that that a lot of Socialists have, have gone in or gone back into the Labour Party, which is obviously I like that's the, the loads of differences between U.S. politics and, and British yeah. politics, and um, but one of one of the biggest of which is that we have a Labour Party here. Right. I I mean we've talked about this in on previous episodes as well that 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 kind of political upsurge that's happened in in the Labour Party hasn't. It hasn't knocked on. It hasn't knocked on yet into a, a similar upsurge in trade unionism, and and it seems like there's a lot of like education to be done in the ranks of the Labour Party to even get people who are like very committed Labour Party members to even take trade unionism seriously at all as a yeah. as, as a kind of 
force for change in society. I mean, a lot of, I, I, I guess, like a lot of, particularly young, younger new Labour Party members haven't really experienced trade unionism as anything other than a, maybe a card that you've got in your wallet. And as, as we kind of started talking about, maybe just have, have never experienced it as a, as a kind of transformational force because we've grown up in a, at a time when the trade unions have, have been weak and you've got the, but you've got these like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people for whom going into the Labour Party was like a no-brainer but going into the trade union movement and organising in the workplace it's, it's so much more difficult to have that conversation with people and to tell them that it's worthwhile doing that yeah. Maybe because it's a much longer term project than are we going to win the next general election or not, and it's to do with all these much bigger questions about what does the global economy look like for the next hundred years and how do we position ourselves to try and take take real power going beyond just getting someone into Downing Street who's sympathetic to us or whatever you know. Um, so, I guess, yeah, just to, just to end, just to end, I guess, like. Um, is there anything else that you want to... I mean, we didn't really talk about the... You, you do talk a lot in the book about US politics and the Democratic Party and... Well, again, I think, you know, looking at the situation here, you know, I'm, I'm still, even though I'm here, I'm sort of slight distance because I'm not in the Labour Party, and even if I could be, I probably wouldn't be. <laughs> uh, we have to take things like momentum and all this seriously, obviously. I mean, anything that politicizes huge numbers of young people and not so young people is, is obviously a, a good thing. Um, but what that means to me is that people who are on those parts of the left that understand, um, you know, both the positive sides of doing this, but also the limits. You know, what we're talking about here is, in the final analysis, still social democracy. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the limits of that, as exciting as it might seem at the moment, um, to begin to talk to them about, you know, well, look, suppose even that Jeremy became PM. Suppose they got a majority of Corbynites in Parliament, very unlikely. Uh, but suppose all of these wonderful things happen. How are they going to get these programs through if there isn't anything, if there isn't any power below electoralism yeah you know again it's, it's like to take the thing in the unions electoralism isn't enough there it's not enough in society by yeah. an even bigger long shot yeah. if you don't have power and the power you know ultimately lie in capitalism lies in the workplace you know whether you're part-time or full-time or whatever it is you can organize there and it's harder it's much easier to go out and campaign you know during an election there's no doubt about it um, or to go to a momentum rally or meeting and, you know, that kind of thing. But, so it is harder. But people who are, you know, on the left, particularly I would say the revolutionary left, very broadly defined, um, who understand this question of power, um, you know, are, should be educating these people, not in the sense of saying, oh, don't do momentum right now because they're not going to listen to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but saying, well, look, you know, there's more to it than just the next election yeah. uh, or even the one after that or, or reforming the Labour Party or winning the NEC. Whoopee, you won the NEC. 
but the parliamentary labor party is still against you and yeah. but never mind that but you, you know you need the you need the power outside and that's where it is in capitalism yeah. it's ultimately where capital gets its profits and that's the workplace and and i guess one of the best ways of of of, of trying to teach people that is is having victories to point to yes. however small which is one of the things that i mean we're trying to do with this podcast is is sort of i mean we've almost deliberately looked at, at some smaller scale inspiring stuff that's going on but most of it not really going on in the in the big trade unions but you know stuff like the mcdonald's stuff and the, and the pitch house stuff um even disputes that may not have haven't yet won and may, and may not even win you know the, the cinema yeah. work um you know disputes that have, haven't won yet and may not even end up winning but just in the in the actual way that they organize are much more inspiring than the kind of business as usual trade unionism that isn't really working in the, in yeah. the modern world yeah, yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree, you know, so, um, yeah, I don't really think I have anything to add to that. Okay, so we just heard from Ed LeBron Brains interviewing Kim Moody on his new book, On New Terrain, um, which I'm sure you'll all agree was brilliant, but I was just wondering, Ed, is there anything you'd kind of like to recap or any sort of uh, thing you'd like to sum up at the end there? Yeah, it's a good job that we found out that half our listenership are uh, based in America, so at least some people are going to understand the LeBron James reference we just made. <laughs> um, I think most of the interview basically speaks for itself. Um, I think that uh, without wanting to speak for you guys, I think we kind of share quite a lot of Kim's perspective in terms of the this whole debate around the kind of the changing nature of work and the sort of so-called fragmentation of the working class. I mean, like Kim mentions uh, in the interview, like you have these huge hubs of, you know, tens of thousands of logistics workers in, in most advanced economies. And that it's a kind of myth that the, that the working class has kind of any, any more heterogeneous than it ever was. It's also a kind of, historical myth that it was ever this kind of monolithic mm. block you know mm. so I think I think books like Kim's are very useful to like n- not not only to to kind of analyze what's happening now but also to kind of break down a lot of historical myths you know the, the kind of idea that oh I guess union organizing must have just been easier back then because mm. you know it's just easier isn't it when everyone works in a in a factory or, or whatever mm. you know and and a lot of that stuff has been very overstated. Um, the the question of logistics is is a very interesting one because uh, I mean, as, as Kim says, like it, it's not really a distinct industry. Mm. It's a kind of industry that serves a, every an other appendix industry. to other industries. And yeah. that I do think that really has um, as as big implications for trade union organisation in that. And 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 as as we talked a bit about, like how how do existing unions work together mm. when they might all have a a stake in that in that sort of in those sort of workplaces already um so for me that book i mean i I really enjoyed the book i think it's a kind of jumping off point maybe to talk about more about sort of organizational stuff which obviously we don't have time to do in 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 this episode but um i did i did want to mention i mean kim uh mentioned it briefly in the interview i did want to sort of flag up labor notes which is a project that he's been involved in for years and years um because Labour Notes was a, a kind of, 
is a kind of a rank and file attempt to um, uh, get to grips with these big questions. It's a sort of part um, organising network and part kind of uh, a platform for people to write and think about these kind of big issues. And what I think is interesting is, is we don't have a sort of parallel to it mm. in, in this country. I mean, um, Sheila Kim's partner was involved in an attempt to kind of have something a bit like it here, but it's it's never really taken off in the same way. And the, the Labour Notes conference, annual conference in America, which is actually coming up pretty soon, it, it brings together like hundreds of, of mm. rank and file trade unionists to really like dig into like really meaty yeah, stuff it's, like it's, this. It's, it's, also, it's also a really important kind of hub for... Um, various sort of reform caucuses and, and rank and file democracy campaigns in various unions. Um, Teamsters for a Democratic Union is mentioned in the book. I couldn't let the episode go by without um, mentioning the Teamsters. Teamsters. <laughs> <laughs> um, Farrell Dobbs gets a mention. Um, uh, so l- look out for that. So uh, Labour Notes has also served to kind of bring together some of those, you know, sort of insurgent rank and file democracy campaigns in the American Labour movement. And I think, and I think Ed's right. I think... There, there has, for for a long time, really been a kind of objective need for something similar in this country, and uh, you know that's I think that's something we should still aspire aspire towards. It's probably also worth saying um, uh, Kim also has a long history in the in in kind of socialist politics as 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 well as involvement in trade unions. Um, uh, he's been involved in a number of uh, in a number of left organisations. Was part of the kind of third camp. Trotskyist milieu around Hal Draper and people like that, who who also gets uh, mentioned in the index. I mean, for my money, like any book that has Farrell Dobbs, uh, Hal Draper, and Stan Weir um, mentioned in it, has has got to be doing something right. Um, Kim, Those are the only books that you own. <laughs> yeah, that's my that's my criteria for buying a book. And the fan fiction um, on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so Kim Kim talks Kim talks. <laughs> I mean. I don't, I don't, I don't know. You're attaching a sort of euphemistic. I don't know why you're attaching a kind of euphemistic uh, implication. Well, you've that. just, you've just read into that. Well, we'll, we'll deal with that in a later episode. Uh, Kim, Kim talks, a, Kim talks a lot in the book about, about politics and about the question of politics, the question of labour representation, the question of the relationship between industrial struggle and politics, which you, you didn't cover so much in, in the interview, but it is probably worth just kind of flagging that up, um, particularly for anyone who, who, who might be interested in, in buying the book to let you know that that stuff is is, is covered as well. Um, and I'll, I'll maybe use that as a, as a little jumping off point to give a shout out to New Politics. Um, that's a, um, a, a anti-Stalinist uh, socialist journal in America that, that Kim's been involved in in the past. Uh, current editor Dan Labotz is uh, one of the kind of pull quotes on the back of, uh, on the back of Kim's book. Um, and that that journal is uh, also a really uh, useful forum for people who are kind of interested in working through, um, you know, the kind of contemporary uh, questions and challenges facing people on the socialist left of the labour movement. So, uh, yeah, go check out New Politics. Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk about the political side so much because, I mean, a lot of the industrial stuff is pretty similar in uh, in any advanced country, uh, particularly. Britain and America are pretty similar, but the political terrain is, is just so different. Sure. I think it would be an entire different episode really to really get into the yeah, yeah. the politics of trade unionization yeah, yeah. and all that, you know. Like and we and we, we should and, and will cover that in the future, I think, both in relation to Britain and America as well. Um but uh just not enough time really to go into it this time. 
Um, I think it probably only remains for us to say um, thank you to Kim, thank you to Sheila, and thank you to Haymarket, the publishers of uh, Kim's book, and, and a particular thanks to Duncan at Haymarket in the UK for reaching out to us and helping set up this interview. Um, it was a real privilege to be able to speak to Kim. We hope you found it interesting, informative, thought-provoking. We'll put up a link, uh, as we mentioned earlier, for where you can uh, go and buy Kim's book. And we'll also put up various links to some articles, the, the strike fund pages, um, et cetera, et cetera, for the disputes we talked about at the top of the show. I think that's about it for this time. So from me, Daniel, and from my co-hosts, Ed and Ellie, and our producer, Liam, um, it's goodbye for now. Until next time, and or all of our solidarity in your, uh, your ongoing struggles. Labour Days was presented by Ed Mustel, Daniel Randall and Ellie Clark. It's produced by Liam McNulty and additional research has been provided by Holly Smith. Find us on Facebook at Labour Days Podcast and on Twitter at Labour underscore days. Subscribe to Labour Days on iTunes and leave us a rating on your podcast app of choice. Boom.